Broadcasting from the Investor Hour studios and all around the world, you're listening to the Stansberry Investor Hour. Tune in each Thursday on iTunes, Google Play, and everywhere you find podcasts for the latest episodes of the Stansberry Investor Hour. Sign up for the free show archive at InvestorHour.com. Here's your host, Dan Ferris. Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm your host, Dan Ferris. I'm also the editor of Extreme Value, published by Stansberry Research. Today, we'll talk with Matt McCall, my friend and colleague. He is one of the best stock pickers I know. He's had more triple and quadruple digit winners that he's recommended than anybody I know. So I like to check in with him frequently. We'll do that today. In the mailbag today, questions about MMT, the Federal Reserve, and lessons learned over the past year. And remember, you can call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. For my opening rant this week, I'll talk about some major inflection points in financial markets today. That and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. So what do I mean by major inflection points? Well, I wrote about this recently in the Stansberry Digest, and I think it bears repeating. I don't mind repeating myself. I used to be paranoid about it earlier in my career, and I was actively like, you know, discouraged. <laughs> Somebody told me I was plagiarizing myself or whatever. It was a long, long time ago. And I thought, well, that's silly. This, you know, if something's important and it's still true, you got to repeat it, right? So if you've read the Stansberry Digest, keep listening to this. I might hit on some points that I didn't make then. But here's the thing. I believe that there are, I just call them five long-term cyclical type trends that are at or near or maybe just beyond, right around a major inflection point. And I've, you've probably heard me mention four of them before, and I'll, I'm going to add a fifth one today. So what, what are these big trends that are at major inflection points? Well, one of them is, is a pretty familiar topic. That's the fact that I think the, the long bull market that started in March of 2009 uh, may be at an end. It, it may have already ended. We may have already seen the top, and we may be looking at a 50 60 70% decline in the big indexes. I'll, you'll never hear me say, you know, that's absolutely the case. You know what I say, prepare, don't predict. So that's one of them. I've talked a lot about that, right? And the way to prepare for that is two things. You make sure you're holding plenty of cash and make sure you're not holding any garbage. Look, we all accumulate some speculative garbage in a big run-up, especially near the top when everything goes absolutely bananas, you know, like it did... Um, basically after March of 2020, then the speculative juices were flowing after that, right? Uh, and now that's that's pretty much over. I think a lot of the bubbles started popping about a year ago, right? Cannabis popped and SPACs and other things. And so your speculative garbage, if you haven't already sold it, you should get rid of it. And, you know, otherwise... Uh, the, in your equity portfolio, holding plenty of cash and no speculative garbage, like that'll get you a long way toward being very, very well prepared if I'm right and a new bear market is going to start soon. Uh, 
Okay, so what's the second one? That's the that's the first big one. What's the second one of these these five? Well, the second one I've talked about once or twice, the value growth stock cycle, right? Value stocks are the cheapest stocks in the market by the traditional measures like price to earnings, price to book, price to cash flow. And the growth stocks are the stocks in the market that have the fastest growing revenues, generally speaking. And they're represented by these big indexes, right? The Russell 3000 Growth Index, the Russell 3000 Value Index. And you can see if you compare those two, the cycles like of one of them outperforming the other for several years at a time, it's very obvious. Okay. So, you know, the, the obviously growth stocks outperformed right up into the dot com peak, right? And then value stocks outperformed um, up to the financial, you know, right before the financial crisis, that peak. Uh, and then ever since then, it's pretty much been a growth market. Uh, so now I think we're at another inflection point and value has begun to outperform. It's been fits and starts over the last year and a half or so, but I think it's outperforming. And and if you did, I saw on Twitter, um, a, a listener and a follower of mine on Twitter said, hey, you know, Dan Ferris said to do this trade where you uh, short the growth index and buy the value index. And it was up when the market was down 10%. It was up like 4%. So, you know, fingers crossed, this is the beginning of a multi-year outperformance for value stocks. All right. Another one that I've mentioned before is commodities versus stocks. Same thing. Like if you, if you do a chart of comparing commodities versus the S&P 500, like use the uh, S&P GSCI commodity index, used to be called the Goldman Sachs commodity index, and go back to like the late 80s or something. Um, if you go back to the 70s, God, the 70s were so crazy that the chart is like screwy. But if you just go back to like the late 80s, you can see the, the cycles since then, right? You know, basically down commodities down into the peak of the dot-com era, then up really into um, that 2011 peak, you know, when gold and all the mining stocks started getting killed. That was the peak, you know. And then ever since then, eh, commodities have pretty much sucked wind. But over the past year, of course, they screamed in 2021, right? And really that started a little bit in late 2020. So, you know, this, this could be it. These things usually last many, you know, several years. So, you know, we could be looking at uh, a decade or so of really good performance from commodities versus stocks, right? Another one that I didn't even think of until our guest Marco Papich mentioned last week was emerging markets. I just say versus the S&P 500, right? Versus domestic equities for U.S. investors. Again, you can take, you know, an emerging markets index, compare it to the S&P 500, and it looks almost the same as all these other things. And I realize, as one digest reader wrote in and said, you know, you're just showing me the cycles in the U.S. dollar. And I was like, well, okay, but that doesn't mean you can't make a lot of money off this stuff. And it doesn't mean we're not at another inflection point. Um, and, you know, he was saying, well, the U.S. dollar is doing really great. And he showed me the a chart that showed it going up and up and up and up and up since the 70s, the trade-weighted dollar. Well, yeah, but I whipped out the, the DXY, the U.S. dollar index chart, which is a really widely watched chart, much more so than the trade-weighted. And that one is a downtrend, a really volatile, highly cyclical downtrend, which more corresponds to the cycles that I'm talking about. 
So, you know, I, I don't really care about the dollar. I know it it influences these trends quite a bit, but look, <laughs> if printing trillions and trillions and trillions of them and and having, you know, a lot of bureaucrats finally convinced that you can do that with impunity and it's okay. Um, I don't know if that is, if that isn't a sign of an inflection point, then maybe I'll be wrong about all these, but I think it's time to buy value, buy commodities, buy emerging markets. And the fifth thing that I think is changing has already changed middle of last year since the middle of last year is inflation. Of course, right. We were up to 7% in December. So you put all these things together and you can exploit all of these. Even if all you do is like buy an emerging market ETF, Marco Papich actually suggested focusing on commodity producing nations like Brazil and Chile. He likes those, you know, so a Brazil ETF and a Chile ETF might, might do you pretty well for the next five, 10 years. And the same thing, like you can target, you could probably target commodities with an ETF in general, or you could target specific commodities at specific times if you wanted to try to do that. You could put all this together, in other words, pretty easy peasy with a bunch of ETFs. What I did was, um, I think I've got inflation, I've got value, and um, I've got commodities really well covered in a portfolio that I created for extreme value readers, which I'll put out for the first time in the February issue that comes out next week. Uh, and, you know, I've got 10 stocks in there that I think, I think you can buy those 10 and just basically put them away for five, at least maybe 10 years or maybe more. And even if these things don't come on super strong, they're great assets and great businesses that should perform well anyway, you know, with great management teams. Some of them have the best management team in the industry. There's big cap names that you recognize, and but there's mostly small cap names that you wouldn't recognize. And I think, you know, small to mid, right? Not, not like, you know, 50 million market caps. I'm talking like a few billion or a couple of billion. So yeah, um, that's just for Extreme Value Readers. I'm just going to put it out there and let you know that it, it's going to exist starting next week. Um, but I think there's a way to exploit all this stuff all these trends um, where you could A, make a ton more than just buying an ETF and B, do really, really well, even if I don't nail the trends, right? If you pick the right businesses, I think you can like minimize your downside from possibly being wrong about the trends and maximize your upside. So I, I just wanted to tell you about that. Um, I think we're at a we're at a huge important time. It, you could almost always say that because there's always something big that nobody's thinking about, but you know there's not always a new bear market maybe possibly about to start, and there's not always a shift out of growth stocks from the last more than a decade into value again. You know, there's not always a big shift into commodities and a big shift into emerging markets. I mean, we haven't seen, you know, commodities and emerging markets and value. I mean, they peaked like between 2007, 2012, 11, something like that. And they've sucked wind ever since. So nobody's really thinking about them. Obviously, commodities are back on the radar screen. Inflation is sort of back on the radar screen. But I, don't, I still don't think people are necessarily taking it all that seriously. And I think they'll be surprised 
because you know inflation doesn't have to it doesn't have to go double digits it just has to be 6 7 8% consistently for several years you know nobody is nobody is thinking about or talking about like you know potentially a few or maybe even several years of kind of painful performance right in in equity markets and in in other assets too uh, it's something to think about. It's it's not something to bet on necessarily, but it's something to think about. And you know me, don't predict, prepare. All right. So those are five things that I think you should try to prepare your portfolio for. And I think you can do it in a way that even if you're wrong about all of them, you'll still have a bunch of good companies. All right. That's all I'm going to say about that. Let's talk with my friend, Matt McCall. Let's do it right now. Matt McCall has been on this show more than once, and now he's stepping forward with a prediction for 2022. If you have any money in the U.S. stock market, you will want to hear what he says could happen next, because it could impact the way you live in a big way. For the first time ever, he's going public with his prediction about a new technology that could lead to a Rust Belt revival in middle America. He says several cities are already quietly being transformed. Flint, Detroit, and Grand Rapids, Michigan, Buffalo and Rochester, New York, his hometown of Bethlehem, as well as Erie, Pittsburgh, and McKeesport, Pennsylvania, and the list goes on and on. More importantly, he believes it could make early investors massive gains if they act on it today. He's excited because he's uncovered a 100% American-made technology that he believes will go through a massive nationwide rollout beginning right now. Matt is a legendary stock picker, and he calls this new technology one of the greatest places to put your money right now. To learn more about Matt's 2022 prediction, simply go online to mattbroadcast.com. Once again, that's mattbroadcast.com. Time for our interview today. Today's guest is Matt McCall. Matt is the lead analyst for the McCall Report. Matt began his career at Charles Schwab, where he was a stockbroker before moving on to a startup, Wall Street Radio. At Wall Street Radio, Matt was the chief technical analyst, as well as the co-host of Winning on Wall Street, a daily national radio show. In the last few years, Matt has sold his other investment-related businesses to focus on the research side of the industry. Through the McCall Report and his other newsletter, Matt McCall's Megatrend Investor, Matt will focus on reaching millions of investors around the world. The goal is to educate and help others achieve financial freedom. That is a lofty and worthy goal. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, Dan. Pleasure being here, as always. Yeah, this is your this is your fourth time, man. I don't know if we've interviewed anybody four times. <laughs> <laughs> You poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Poor Dan. He's got to got to put up with Matt McCall for another for a fourth time. Well, it's my pleasure. I want you to know. Uh, so we, you know, if, in case anybody does want to uh, sort of get some background, we talked about those things with uh, some background uh, stuff with Matt last time, episode two twenty eight, October fourteenth, twenty twenty one. So. You know, maybe if you want to learn more about Matt's background, you can go to that. But I'd rather just kind of dive right in, if that's cool, Matt. 
And I'm, yeah, I'm going to take a wild guess here, Matt, that the the mild unpleasantness of the month of January in the year of 2022 didn't phase you one bit, right? Well, it no? phased me quite a bit, but not in a way that you probably <laughs> would project. <laughs> you know, okay. it, you know, yeah. I spent all of last weekend um, watching some football and going through historical charts. And not that I was trying to push one um, strategy or the other, but I was just trying to find out, you know, what was really going on with this market and what it meant historically. Because, you know, I agree with this time's not the same as last time. You know, pullbacks 40 years ago, you had to call your broker. Now you hit a button on your phone to sell or buy. So it is a bit different. The one thing that's the same, though, and Dan, you might agree with me on this, is it's it's psychology. You know, we're human beings. So we still go back to caveman days where we get a bit worried about things and uh, negativity runs wild in our head and you panic and hit the sell button. You know, back then I might have been running from a woolly mammoth. Who knows? But we, we see the same type of action in all pullbacks. So I, I did a deep dive on, on all recent pullbacks we've had over the last uh, several decades. And the first thing I found was that as of last week, Dan, the average NASDAQ stock was down nearly 44%, even though at that mm -hmm. time the index was only down 12%. And that's fascinating to me because if you turn on the, the, the major media or look on Yahoo Finance, wherever you might go, uh, okay, NASDAQ's down 12%, S&P's down less than 10, things are all right. But a lot of people are feeling a lot more pain because a lot of the smaller cap stocks, a lot of the growth and innovation stocks have really taken a beating. And the reason the indices continue to stay near the highs, or not far from highs, I should say, is because of the big names. Um, mm -hmm. Most of the bigger names have held up pretty well and keeping, and they make such a high percentage of that index that it keeps it up there. So what I found though, uh, the, the long into the short here, Dan, is that after looking at history and seeing all the, the pullbacks that we've had going back to 1950, that typically a correction, which is a pullback of 10% or more, ends up being a, a great buying opportunity uh, if you are able to hold for at least one year, which you know me by now being on here fourth time, I'm a long-term investor. So holding for a year is nothing for me. Right. Whereas holding for most people through a long weekend is really difficult. So yeah, I, I mean, that's just about the answer I, I expected, right? It's no fun. Months like January are no fun. We don't wish for them to happen, but uh you know, when they happen, I, I just know, I mean, I, I actually had that thought a couple of times, um, in the past few weeks, I was like, I know damn well, Matt's buying, Matt is buying right now. I just want to know what the hell he's buying so I can buy it too. <laughs> you know, I've actually so, been me, buying on me, my own too. I, I, I have been, Dan, mm -hmm, you know, I've been mm -hmm. buying into some, you know, we, we obviously can't buy the same stocks we recommend in our newsletter. So I don't usually share what I buy for that reason, but I, I've been buying right, you know, last right. week, bought on Friday's pullback, bought into an ETF, which I rarely do just because I thought it was a great opportunity. Um, and, you know, again, I don't know if they go straight up. Uh, they most likely will not. There's going to be pullbacks along the way. But, you know, the thing is, going back to 1950, there's been on average exactly, believe it or not, one pullback per year on average. It doesn't always happen one a year. There wasn't one last year. But we already have one this year. Uh, in 2020, I believe we had three or four in the S&P 500. So this is this is normal. And yeah, mm -hmm. I got to tell mm -hmm. you, yo, it stinks looking at my uh, portfolio that is very heavy in, in growth and innovation and very heavy in cryptocurrencies get crushed in December and January. It wasn't fun watching that. But you know, I've been doing this for 20 plus years that I know if I were to panic sell at this point, that's the last thing I want to do. This is this, you know, if the longer you're in the market, 
And that means you get to live a longer life, which is fantastic. The more pullbacks and the more recessions, the more bear markets you're going to have. You know, I believe in a roaring 2020s, but I still believe we'll have recessions along the way. We're going to have bear markets along the way. But I think at the end of the day, at the end of this decade, we're going to be much, much higher in the trends that we're looking at. Along the way, we're going to have massive pullbacks. It's just how it is. And if you can't handle that, the stock market's probably not for you. It's not that I'm not for you. The stock market's not for you. Right. So uh, too many people, I think, believe that the answer is to do a lot of short-term trading. But from what I've seen, the individuals who excel at that, they're a whole different breed. They have a kind of iron discipline that, frankly, Matt, it, it, it seems to go beyond what guys like you and I do when we buy a stock and hang on to it for, you know, a decade or more. Um, do you agree? No, I, I agree a thousand percent. I mean, I've known a lot of people throughout the years that have been swing traders, that have been day traders, that have great years, great five years. But then they have that one run where they get kind of blindsided and all those gains that they accumulate over those years are gone. It's very difficult to, to do it. And I, I try to talk most people out of it. I said, if you want to do that, it's the same as going to Vegas. If you go to Vegas, you said, listen, I'm willing to lose a thousand dollars or 500 bucks or 10,000. Okay, that's your money you sit down at the blackjack table with or whatever you're doing. If you lose it, you get up and you walk away. I would say the same thing if, if you're day trading or swing trading because you very quickly have this plan in your head, Dan, where it's like, all right, this is my risk management plan. Well, that goes out the window the moment you start losing money. Next thing you know, you're praying to the gods every night just to get back to break even. You know, it's just, right, it's just I've right. seen that story too many times. And I, I'm not cut out for it. I'm a terrible gambler. I love playing blackjack, but I know if I break even, I'm the happiest guy in the world. So I, I just think most people aren't <laughs> wired for it, really. Yeah, they're not. So if you don't do that, then what do you do? Do you care more? I know you're, um, you know, you're a long-term bottom-up guy. I know you believe deeply in the power of new technologies to, to create a lot of value and create a lot of wealth. Um, what are you doing these days? Is there a particular, you know, we just talked to you in October. Maybe I should ask you if anything has changed much since then. Well, you know, the only thing that's really changed for me is the the opportunities. You know, back in October, I obviously liked the trends I liked at that point, uh, whether it be artificial intelligence or future battery technology or the metaverse, et cetera, uh, electric vehicles. Still love them. Uh, it's just that a lot of those stocks uh, are much cheaper than they were at, at in October. So to me, if, if you're new to the game, this is actually a great opportunity to start accumulating shares here. Um, if you're not new to the game, this is the, this is the tough time when you have to hold on a downturn. I think we've either bottomed out or very close to the bottom in, in my innovation trends that I follow. So at this point, it's the last thing you want to do is look to sell. You've made it through the, the beatdown. Uh, now it should be up from here or at least build a bit of a base. Um, so what I've been doing, is Dan, is going through all of my trends that are still the same and just doing a deep dive into the stocks that have pulled back, uh, looking to see if any of their stories have changed, uh, looking at the fundamentals. Um, there's a lot of stocks out there now. I like to look at price of sales for a lot of these because earnings are, are tough if they even have them. Look, the price of sales are now trading at the same price of sales level that they were at the bottom in 2020 when the pandemic just hit. So to me, that's a great opportunity. Um, so I, I look at that and I look at continued growth. You know, a lot of the, the, these companies still continue to hit record numbers, 
yet the stock's down 30 to 50% from a high, even though they just reported a record uh, record quarter. So it doesn't always jive and go hand in hand. And to me, the stock market's extremely inefficient in the short term. But over time, if a company is going to be making more money every year, the stock price will follow eventually. And that, that's how I look at these trends that I, I, you know, I, I thought back in the day when I was younger, Dan, I could time this market, I could swing trade, I could get in and out. And I learned the hard way. It's much more difficult. And I tell you, the older I get, I like to you know, sit on the beach and do my thing and, and look at the stocks. I don't want to be stressing out every day. That's not a really good life. No, it's not a good quality of life at all. Let me ask you a specific question. You still feel the same about Tesla? You still bullish? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. I, I am still bullish yeah. on Tesla. And you know, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I think autonomous vehicles would be here sooner rather than later. Um, it's again, this is this is a trend that's going to hit a lot of no pun intended bumps in the road along the way. Uh, but mm-hmm. Tesla is still a leader in there. Uh, they're obviously a global leader in electric vehicles. Um, so I still think there, there's huge upside. But again, the the, the valuation is is still ridiculous. But I, I look out further that the valuation will eventually uh, come back to a normal level, quasi normal level, not you know market normal. Uh, once we start seeing some of the energy storage and their battery technology really uh, start to add some revenue and something to the bottom line. So I think it's more than just a, an automobile play. Uh, it is it is an energy storage. It is a um, battery play. And it's an, it's a bet on Elon Musk to continue coming up with something new. I mean, fair enough. He's 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 obviously a brilliant guy and he handles, you know, enormous projects you know, better than most, better than I ever could. I wouldn't be, you know, I wouldn't get started on any of them. Uh, but do you ever wonder, like, you know, the full self-driving has just not gone the way it was promised. Do, do you, you're obviously, I mean, you cited autonomous driving as, you know, as a, a, a reason to be bullish. Um, but man, <laughs> There are so many stories about how this is not going well. Does that worry you at all? In the short term, if I was a a short-term holder of Tesla and and my entire thesis was based on that, maybe a little bit. But again, this is a technology that is so new that it's not going to go straight up. There's going to be a lot of... uh, you know, instances where, you know, somebody, there's an accident or all of a sudden they, they start going through stop signs or whatever it might be. What's different about today than, let's say, 40 years ago when uh, there was an innovation taking place behind the scenes is we're watching it live. Back then, if this was going on 40 years ago, you didn't have the internet. You didn't have all this stuff to keep an eye on every day, every little thing. You don't have people with cell phones videoing every time something happens to a Tesla vehicle. But I think if you look at the percentage of, of instances versus how much testing is truly going on between Waymo, which is owned by Google, Alphabet, between Tesla, um, over in China, Baidu is a huge player in, in autonomous vehicles. There's so much testing going on around the world right now. We hear about several instances. And you know, it's, it's similar to anything in the world right now, where you're going to pick out the, the most bombastic, the most fascinating headline. And again, People love to hate. You know, I'm an optimistic guy, but you know, I, I, there's certain people that bother me. But people love to hate Elon Musk. They love to hate Tesla for whatever reason. Um, and and to me, I, I think a lot of it's blown out of proportion. Is it not where I think it would have been by now, Dan? Absolutely. But I don't think that's the end of it. I still think there's huge potential for autonomous vehicles. 
And if I close my eyes and I reopen them, let's say 2028, which is six years from now, I would guarantee there's all kinds of autonomous vehicles out there right now. Maybe not what you see in these sci-fi drawings, but people that are jumping in their car and they could you know, sit back and, and, and do some text while it, while it drives down A1A in front of me right here. Right. Okay. I think I'm sort of down the middle. Like, I don't have anything against Tesla. I don't love to hate Elon Musk. Um, or, you know, do I even love to say Tesla's a piece of junk because I've driven the cars and they're awesome. I mean, I had to say it was like one of the best driving experiences of my life. It's just, to me, it's all about uh, the prospect of this thing succeeding as a business in an industry where it's really hard to bring in a bring in a brand new company, brand new type of product. I mean, I guess what what I'm saying is the basic task of creating a whole brand new technology in an industry like automobiles is really, really rough. And they're not exactly making money hand over fist at this, you know. Uh, and, you know, the accounting might, it doesn't appear to be the greatest in the world either. So, you know, to me, that's what it, that's all it's about. I, I actually love the idea of a new technology. I, and I love, I love your perspective on technology, you know, and I like your optimism because I actually do feel that way. Yeah, I own gold. I'm afraid of a bear market and all this other stuff. But um, who, Matt, who among us can deny the endless upward ascent of the general standard of living, right? I mean, yeah, who could deny it? No, you're right. And so, just, to, so, just one more point, yeah. Tesla, I don't want to get stuck on this topic too much, Dan, but, you know, everybody said sure. the same thing about Tesla seven, eight years ago, that there's no way uh, they're going to come into this, this game where there's a big three, you know? There's no way that they can become an electric vehicle leader. And they are the global leader by, by, by you know, a country mile. So they, they've done mm -hmm. it before. And, and again, I, I bet on jockeys a lot of times, not the horse. And this jockey has done it before. So again, when I, if I go back to the races, I'm going to bet on this jockey again. So I haven't given up on, on that yet because, I've, you know, he's surprised people in the past. And I, and I, think, I think they can do it again. I mean, I may be way wrong. I don't know. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm riding that jockey for now. All right. Fair enough, man. I, you know, I admire the conviction. Uh, and let's face it, conviction in a, in a long-term story that other people kind of start to hate that eventually turns out well over the long term is, you know, that's worth a lot. <laughs> it's worth a lot of money if you can do it. So, uh, all right. So, you know, I'm, I'm good with, I'm good with believing that, you know, there are going to be a lot more electric vehicles on the road in five, 10 years, whatever. That's cool. Um, what else? What? How about? Um, did you and I ever talk about cannabis? I don't know if we did. I think we did a few times ago. You know, my view. Somebody just asked me about this. Honestly, I was sitting having a, a drink at dinner the other night with a, with a group, and they asked me about cannabis stocks. I said, you know, I was one of the first people to start investing in it. Um, I remember hosting events where there was literally four people in the room, and the CEO at the time of Canopy, Linton was sitting next to me, you know, being the CEO of the largest cannabis company in the world. And we couldn't get five people in the damn room. Um, so <laughs> it, I was there from the beginning and, you know, I, I was a huge proponent of it. A at this point, there is some opportunity in some of the U.S.-based uh, multi-state operators, they call them MSOs, uh, because they're just mm -hmm. so cheap right now. Uh, and I do yeah. think eventually it will be legalized. 
The problem is it's the, the pricing. There's been so much competition that the pricing has been knocked down so much that the margins have gotten crushed in a lot of these cannabis companies. And that that's what kind of keeps me away from it. So I don't see, I don't see another big run up. Like we've, we've had it basically twice in the last 10 years, 11 years or so run up in the cannabis stocks. Are they value plays down here? Yeah, I can, I can make a case for that. Um, but I just don't see the huge upside uh, from here because it becomes a commodity. Um, you know, I, I see, and this is riskier and I don't own anything in this, but you know, I, I, I deal with mental health issues and it's becoming more prominent in the last uh, couple of years during the pandemic. And you're seeing a lot of studies. There's a big one going on Johns Hopkins right now uh, using um, psychedelics uh, for um, people with mental illness instead of getting on you know, drugs, pharmaceuticals and stuff. And you're seeing great promise from that. People with PTSD coming back from, from war. Um, I, I think there's a big, big upside to the medical side of that because I think we need to figure out how to deal with the mental health, uh, health issues that this uh, country and this world has right now. And I think we need to look outside of pharmaceuticals. So when you look at like the mushroom stocks and you know some of them uh, are using types of acid and other things, you know, I don't have the companies that, that I can mention, but I think there is bigger upside in the medical side of all this stuff right now. That is, that's an interesting viewpoint. A lot of people talk about the, you know, the recreational use, like, wow, that's the, that's the big enchilada. But, um, I hear you. It, it seems to me to depend on, on research because word of mouth doesn't seem to quite cut it. You know, you, you hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I have arthritis or, you know, I was having pain when I had cancer and all this stuff. But, it seems to me like if you don't get people just respond better if they know they're you know uh, the the uh, the medical establishment says it's okay. Yeah, I, I agree a thousand percent because you know it's like taking a stock tip from your neighbor. <laughs> Not taking a stock tip from my neighbor. Yeah, um, and it's also it, it's it, and if you go online, obviously you could find whatever you're searching for. You could find whatever you want to find. You know whether it's good or bad. So you can find somebody saying that that this whatever product works. So yeah, I mean, I would like to, you know, I question some of the stuff coming out of our quote unquote, um, you know, trusted medical officials right in the last couple of years. So I don't know if I take that yeah. uh, any any better either. But I will say that I think people in general would much rather have a, a doctor, an MD, or you know, I would look towards something like a Johns Hopkins, which is one of the leaders in research, and see what they come up with uh, in real trials and see how that goes. But I, I just think that we have to start looking for, for other ways to treat people. I mean, mental illness is a huge, huge problem. And and think about the people that don't even talk about it. I mean, it is, you're seeing it in athletes, now you're seeing it everywhere. And uh, there, we need to do something about it. And I, and I think this is an option. And I don't know, it's early stages. I wouldn't say I put my money into it, but I think that would be the next uh, wave of this type of uh, trend. If you're going to see big gains, it'd be in this type of uh, really niche high-risk sector. Yeah, so I bring it up because... I read a little bit lately about how John D. Rockefeller started the American Cancer Society, and part of his push into the medical industry was to try to get, uh, you know, petroleum-based products used, you know, as medical products. And and he went he went to to great pains to sort of get the government to kind of discredit any kind of folk medicine or, you know, including things like marijuana, um, you know, anything that people were using that basically wouldn't benefit him. And 
I don't know. It seems to me like, I don't know if it's his, all his doing, but somebody has succeeded with that. And this idea, to me, the reason I brought up, the, to me, it just seems so crazy that you would want for this, you know, this weed that humanity has been smoking for a long, long time, you know, um, a lot longer than the modern pharmaceutical industry has existed, that you would really, that you would need research to exist. You know what I'm saying? It's like this folk medicine. And we're, you'd think that using it now in medicine means we're getting back to it and we're starting to trust ourselves. But it really means that the, that industry, you know, the, the, the legitimate medical field has discovered it or something, you know, it's sort of perverse to me. It really is. Yeah. I mean, and there's great stories about how, you know, basically marijuana got banned back in the day, you know, obviously it comes out. Yeah. It comes out. I mean, I, I, I have always yep. said this and, and most people agree with me, you know, not, not saying I'm just using a hypothetical here. You take a couple of puffs of something or you take a little edible or you go out to the bar and drink too many vodkas. I'll tell you what, those too many vodkas are going to cause you much more trouble than taking a couple of puffs of a joint. Uh, and so it's, uh, to me, I, I, I am a thousand percent behind right. if people want to do it. They should be allowed to do it. And I think there are great medical benefits to it. I had a massage this morning and she rubbed this CBD stuff over. I have arthritis in my shoulder. It's the best it's felt. I mean, this stuff was mm -hmm. amazing. So, I, and, and maybe it, yep. it was in my head, but I don't know. But I'll tell you that I, I there is there is studies that show that there are medical benefits to it. Yep. Yeah, we've we've had a um, couple of guests fairly recently discussing it, um, who know a lot more about medicine than I ever will. Um, so yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned it. All right. Um, what else are you looking at that you, I mean, is there anything like brand new that you, that you wouldn't have been talking about back in October when we talked to you? Uh, let me think if there's anything else out there. Um, you know, probably, you know, I, I just did a report and on 3d printing and I've been doing a deeper dive in it. I, I've always kind of had it on my radar, but I didn't do really do a deep dive, but the last couple of months I've done more. And it really kind of popped up on my radar during the pandemic with the supply chain issues. And the more I look into it, the more fascinating I, I think it, it's going to be. And I think that by the end of the decade, it could be over a trillion dollar industry. And the reason for that is 3D printing can be used in any sector that we have. And it's being used in a ton already. You know, Volkswagen's using it for some of its 3D, uh, sorry, some of its EV um, parts, electric vehicle parts. And you think about GM and Ford as they try to make this major transition from uh, combustible engines to electric vehicles, they can't, it's brand new machinery. They can't just, you know, re-retrofit an entire facility or build a brand new facility and retrofit it for EVs. They need to do this quick too, because there's a lot of companies, they can't sit around. So why wouldn't you just start 3D printing the pieces? And the biggest part that I, I just came across this, this past week that really kind of flipped a switch in my head is um, end use products or spare parts. And there's a story I remember um, in a book called uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think by Peter Diamandis. I read a couple of years ago. He talked about it back then and the story is stuck in my head. You know, say you're an Iowa farmer and it's, it's uh, harvest season. You know, you, you have this part that breaks in your tractor, but it, you, know, you have to get it flown in from here or there. You can't find it. It's a, it's a rare piece. You go to a local place, they 3D print it for you because you have the schematics, boom, 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 it's on that day and you're back to work. You don't miss a harvest season, which could crush your livelihood. Um, there's stories you know, over in uh, Italy when COVID was rampant, they ran out of swabs, they started 3D printing them. They ran out of one piece for the ventilator, they started 3D printing them. I mean, this, this really lets 
countries too not you know not depend on China for a piece because there's so we are a global market. I like being a global economy, but that being said, people are going to play games, and when they do, you can say, you know what, you know, give them the thumb and say, hey, we're going to do this right here. We we have the the 3D printing. We can do it right here. So I, I think it's absolutely fascinating for spare parts, end use, uh, medicine, uh, technology, or uh, manufacturing, uh, vehicles. It really and, and it's not. You know, I don't. You probably remember back in the day, Dan, when three D printing was big. What heck was that? Fifteen years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago, all those stocks went up big because everybody thought we'd have one yeah, in our house. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need one in our yeah, house. Right. I'm talking about three D printers that are size of you know a garage. These are for industrial three D printers. Um, Boeing makes a large portion of their um, uh, parts for their engines from three D printing. Two days ago, Dan, I saw the coolest thing I've one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. I'm walking down A one A here in Florida. I look up. And there's this rocket flying through the sky. SpaceX went off. And I thought to myself, well, you know, a large part of that's 3D printed, which is pretty amazing. So it's mm -hmm. it, it, it's out there already, but I just think that's going to be such a big industry. And what I like about it, too, is nobody's really talking about it. And most people hate it that are in your and I position that have been around the market for a long time because they remember the joke that it was 15 years ago. Right. Yeah, I'm just looking at a, a chart of 3D Systems Corporation. You know, Triple D, one of the big ones, um, and it looks like it peaked in in 2013. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you look at all those charts, however long ago it was, it's like um, it's like a rocket ship. I mean, it's like a picture of a Christmas tree, and the rest of the chart is flat. It's it's really super dramatic. But I'm glad you mentioned it. I really am because now. That's a technology that I could really, really kind of believe in because it's still here. It went through its bubble phase. You know, some of the crappy companies disappeared, whatever. But it's still around and and it's getting greater and greater adoption. I love that idea. Like 3D systems isn't a, a stock that I follow. I mean, I know it obviously pretty well because it was one of the big ones back in the day. Um, right. but, but just looking at the numbers quickly, you know, there, there'll be profitable last year and they're going to be profit, you know, for the first time annually, I think in a long time, if ever, you gotta, you gotta like that too. These guys aren't just, you know, a pie in the sky here. They're actually turning a profit now. And that, that's nice to see. And they trade at decent valuations considering they're, you know, a smaller $2.3 billion growth company. And that's, that's what you want to see when, when these types of companies, you know, I always say, I want a path to profitability. They don't have to turn a profit today, but I need a path. When these companies start hitting profits like this and their business model is completely different than it was. And now you're opening a brand new, you know, they've been able to adapt. And, and you mentioned that just a second ago, they went through the bubble phase of, of, you know, these, these dreams, which never came to fruition, but now it's actually a true business. It's a real industry. Yeah. You know, it's real when, uh, you know, people are making all kinds of stuff that the government wants to ban, right? <laughs> that's, that's that's how you know it has taken root amongst the population. There's a real market for stuff that gets banned, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I wonder, I don't know, I just, I wonder if, you know, there is any regulatory risk to it in that regard. Or do you think it's just the, the risk is in the products that people make, right? Guns, Guns might be, you know, regulated, but the devices making them might not be. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that guns. I mean, I think guns would be regulated, obviously, and I hope they would be um, to some extent, because you don't want just some kid printing one at home. Um, some somehow there, but I feel like if you want to get a gun, you get one anyway. Uh, but yep, I think yep. you know the, the regulation though could come from 
China stealing, you know, the CAD design of something and just printing it themselves and not having to, um, you know, pay, you know, any any money to the company that came up with it. I think there's probably an issue, there's an issue there, but I think that's happening already. So I, I, I think there'll be ways around it. Um, and and I think it, it goes this goes kind of to the Web 3.0, where you're kind of a more open source uh, world that we live in. So that would actually fit right into this. Yeah. Cool. I'm I'm glad we talked about cannabis. I'm glad we talked. I'm glad you mentioned 3D printing. Now you have me excited about looking at it because you know, any anything that lasts for any period of time. That's just the way I feel about technology a lot of the time. Like I think about Microsoft, right? That is not an innovative company, but it is a massively successful one, right? I mean, you, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So it's it's interesting to me that. You could be a really successful technology investor, but you you know it's not like you have to hurry up and get ahead of every trend at all. Or or, or am I wrong about this? No, you're right. And th- there's one thing that Microsoft did and still does: they created an amazing moat around their business. It's not easy <laughs> to go. jump in, you know. So if if you that's that's one of the keys. If you're if you're looking to buy a new company. If they have a moat, man, oh man, think about how many companies you thought were great. And then Amazon went right through that moat and <laughs> destroyed the castle. You know, they didn't have the moat. Uh, but you know, when I look at Microsoft, man, you can't, no, you and I can't start a business and jump in there, Dan, and take them down. I mean, that's just crazy. Um, but I will say one thing on Microsoft, you know, obviously it's different now being a two point whatever trillion dollar company, but, you know, it went public back in what, 86, I think. 86 through 2000, you know, that's that's like the early stages. I looked for the companies back then. That's when you make the big money, getting in early. You look at how many pullbacks this this stock had of at least 20%. And I'm going to go through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, at least 10, that I can see in that time frame. So it gives you kind of that when people now freak out that the stock pulled back 20%, hey, there's no way to get those 10x gains here, you know, several hundred x gains without having pullbacks. It's just part of the part of the game. Yeah, it's a part of it's a part of the game that human beings, as as you discussed earlier, are really ill suited for. <laughs> exactly. Listen, I'm human too. I mean, it, it hits yeah. my gut. I had an extra martini last week when I went out. Like, it, it, I feel it too. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> What's the secret to hanging on, though? Is it is it just that you're so educated? Is it that you you know? You dig in so deep that you you know the technology, you know the management, you know you you feel like you know Elon Musk, his track record so well, you believe in him. What is there one thing that you can point to that says this is the reason why I'm able to hold on and the other guy isn't? Well, I'll say two things. One, you know, I managed money for 18 years, so I had to actually deal with clients that called in on these types of times and say, Matt, you're crazy. Let's sell everything. So I was a shrink for about 18 years and then get paid for it. So that that's <laughs> one, you know, just kind of seeing how people react. And I'll tell you, Dan, there, there were certain clients that I had, you know, over the majority of that time frame that were the exact contrarian indicators. You know, anytime they call in and they're freaking out, it's probably the best time to allocate some more cash and vice versa. When I said, Matt, you know, we, why are we only 95% allocated? I want to be 100% allocated. That's probably the best time to take some profits. So I, I got to see how people react. And I think studying the psychology of it's really helped me uh, to realize. And the other thing is because, again, over time, you get big winners. 
I've seen a lot of positions that I sold way too early in my in my career, way too early, mm-hmm. Dan. Um, going back to intuitive surgical, buying at single digits, ISRG, and we know where that stock is today. I mean, it's just things oh, yeah. like that where you know I thought I was a genius. This was the first year of managing money. I thought I was a genius, so I made like forty percent in a couple of months, and I would have held on. I would, you know, could have been a. I mean, the amount of money is just I can't even think about it. So things like that, where I've seen my conviction, where I I see a trend and they all don't work out, but that's the thing I've realized too. I can't expect them all to work out, but all you need is one or two intuitive surgicals in your 20 year career. And I don't care what the hell the other ones do. You're going to do pretty darn well. And so to me, I'm always looking for that next intuitive surgical. Yeah. So I've, I've got a chart in front of me and I guess the farthest over on the left I can go is like three bucks. Yeah, now it's at like 290, I think. So when I started the business in like 03, 04. So yeah, if you go all the way back to then, it's like two bucks a share post split. So it's about 120 bagger or so. So yeah, yeah I don't want to do the numbers. <laughs> Dan, you're going to drive me to another martini if I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh so listen, we can we can do my final question, and you've done this three times before, so maybe you remember it, but I'll just remind you in case you forgot. Every guest of the Stansberry Investor Hour podcast gets the identical final question, okay? No matter what the topic, no matter who they are. And the final question is simply, if you could leave our listeners with one thought, a single thought today, Matt, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. This is the fourth time. I, I don't know if I have four thoughts in this little head of mine, Dan. I know. <laughs> I like being on four times, but I didn't prepare for this question because it, it looks. Yeah, we need to get a new new final question for Matt because he's been on too many times. No, I you know I, I'd say the thought is for the average person out there, you know, you're, you're probably not going to start a business because it's just not that you can't, but you probably won't. The stock market, to me, the, the U.S. stock market, investing in solid companies, it doesn't have to be aggressive, but investing in solid companies is one of the greatest, if not the greatest way to accumulate wealth over time for the average American. So I, for anybody who, who listens too much to the television or, or podcasts or me, media websites and thinks that things are rigged, just look at a very long-term chart of the S&P 500, please. Lower left to upper right, the amount of money. And you, don't, you can just buy into the index, but put money away in a consistent basis, whether it's your 401k or an IRA and expand from there. But I will tell you, for the average person, um, by not doing that, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Well said, sir. And thank you. That's like a, I mean, that's a public service announcement that we should just do every week, right? <laughs> that's <laughs> that's <you>. great. <laughs> yeah. All right, Matt. As as always, a great pleasure to talk with you and get your thoughts on things. And yeah, thanks Dan, for thank being you, here. And thank you so much. And I, I'm going to ask one thing of you. So when I come back home for my fifth time, you got to hit me with another mm-hmm. question because I can't get any better than that answer. I don't think. I think I think I've topped out. I, I'm I'm I, I bubbled out on that one, Dan. It's it's so good though. I think we might just forget the final question and replay that. <laughs> That's perfect. Take take all the stress off me. <laughs> there you go. All right, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. You bet, man. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Well, I hope you enjoyed talking with Matt McCall as much as I have um, these four times now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. As you can see, he's a fantastic guy to check in with. 
because I can just pepper him with questions about this trend and that technology and what he's doing now. Um, and we always learn from him. And man, that's what, when, as an investor, you want to surround yourself with people like Matt, a solid bottom up, long-term optimistic guy who can teach you something about different opportunities and different industries. Every time you talk to him, he's like a perfect, perfect guest for this show. I hope you agree with me about that. All right, let's do the mailbag. Okay, everybody, did you see that inflation came at 7% in December? 7%. It's the highest in over 40 years. Meanwhile, all the speculative bubbles are popping all across the markets. Marijuana stocks, SPACs, then practically the entire so-called growth sector. The market is giving you a huge warning. Are you paying attention? I sure hope so. Because what happens next is going to be an absolute disaster if you're not prepared. That's why I just gave the most important interview of my life on camera with journalist and gold expert Daniela Cambone. We talked about a very specific plan for what to do right now today to protect your hard-earned savings, including a gold stock that I think could return you more than 10 times your money if you get in right away. It's simple to get started, and I expect this hard asset plan to absolutely crush the overall market over the next five to 10 years. Trust me, you do not want to miss this and it's going live next week. Keep an eye on your inbox for an email from me with the subject line, your inflation game plan. Again, we'll post the complete interview early next week. Just keep an eye out for an email from me with the subject line, your inflation game plan. Don't miss it. In the mailbag each week, you and I have an honest conversation about investing or whatever is on your mind. Send questions, comments, and politely worded criticisms to feedback at investorhour.com. I read as many emails as time allows, and I respond to as many as possible. Or call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. First up this week is TG. TG says, Dan, long-time listener here, a lot of doom and gloom these days, and I think that it's a common opinion that there will be pain in the short term. But some also predict long-term pain with excessive money printing and Egon, our recent guest, Egon von Greyers, expressing concern about the status of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. Last year, I read The Rise of America by Marin Katusa. Now, I can't say that I understood it all, but Mr. Katusa seems less worried about money printing and a transition to MMT. I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on a transition to MMT, the matter, and discussing the long game with Mr. Katusa, TG. TG, uh, maybe we will talk with Marin um, or not. I, I don't, um, we currently don't have plans to have him on the show, but maybe we will. I've, I've talked to him before in the past. Um, so, MMT is modern monetary theory. And the basic idea is that if you're the reserve currency, you can print as much money as you want. And if inflation starts to be a problem, all you got to do is raise taxes. <laughs> it sounds so easy. It's a typical top-down pat solution to, you know, 
the the top-down management of a multi-multi-trillion dollar economy. In my opinion, there's no way, no way it doesn't generate all manner of destructive, unintended, unforeseen consequences. You, there's no way you can tell what is going to happen when you unleash that kind of, uh, you know, massive money printing um, into a multi-trillion-dollar economy. It's so complex, you know. It, it would be a massive mistake. And of course, you know, the people who would pay the most are those with the least resources. That's always the way, isn't it? All the top-down schemers and, and government bureaucrats all claim that they have the simple top-down solution to how to perfect society, but none of them ever do. And they never, ever, ever admit the mass destruction of their policies. You know, they'll tell you that Social Security has been an un, you know, a, a, an unwavering success. Nothing like that could possibly be the truth. It has created disastrous results that no one will talk about. It's a powerful incentive to not to take care of yourself to some degree. And there's something very wrong with that. Uh, I, I believe it has contributed to the destruction of uh, many, you know, urban families of modest means, poor urban families over the past several decades, over the past century. Anyway, you know, enough of that. I just want you to know, I don't, I, I don't know what Marin says. I haven't read his book, but I think uh, modern monetary theory is just a massive disaster if, if they do it. Good question, though. It's something that we should keep in mind and talk about because if, if government gets serious about it, we all need to get, you know, torches and pitchforks and march to the Capitol. And not to break in, okay, you know, no more January 6th stuff, just peaceful protesting. Oy. All right, next is Taylor S. And Taylor S. says, hey, Mr. Ferris, haven't had a chance to listen to your podcast lately, but I still read your Friday Digest when I can. Question, if the Fed chickens out to raise rates and actually goes into negative interest rate territory, wouldn't that force people to move their money out of the banks? and into more assets like stocks, thus keeping the bull market going. If they step in, assets tank. If they don't, inflation will run very high, no? I think they're playing dumb and want to debase the currency as much as possible so they can swoop in with their Fed coin or USD stable coin as part of their great reset. The Fed says, quote, inflation is rampant. We can't stop it without completely destroying the economy by raising interest rates. So we created a new digital currency. Trade in your paper dollars today. We're saviors again. And Taylor S. asks then, is, that, is this too much tin hat conspiracy? Possible, not possible thoughts? Hope all is well, Taylor S. Uh, you know, whether or not the Fed is scheming to do what you suggest, I have no idea and, and won't speculate. Um, but your initial question is a very good one. And I'll just reiterate, you said if the Fed chickens out to raise rates and actually goes into negative interest rate territory, that is, lowers interest rates into negative rate territory, wouldn't that force people to move their money out of banks and into more assets like stocks, thus keeping the bull market going? Well, um, you know, it, it sure took a long time for it to have that effect um, in other places. But I suppose, yeah, you could say that. 
Um, negative interest rates uh, are have not really gone terribly well, I don't think, around the world. Um, they were purported to be a way to stimulate economic activity and economic growth, and they've done nothing like that. And now Europe is looking at, you know, five plus percent inflation, record high inflation um, over some period of time, you know, in, in a long time, I forget the exact number. It doesn't matter. It just matters all of a sudden inflation is like this thing that, that it wasn't before. But yeah, if it, it could keep the bull market going, sure. Everyone said, well, I can't, you know, I'm not going to pay the bank to store my money. So I will put it into the stock market or the bond market or, you know, a anything, anything else really is the point, right? And it makes a lot of sense. But you got to understand, we talked about, um, I think we actually talked about Mark, about this topic with Mark Dow. It was a couple years ago. And he pointed out, he said, you know, it can be worth it to hold a negative interest rate currency. I mean, the, you know, if the negative interest rate is like 0.05% or 0.25% or something, um, and the alternative, and you have to hold cash, let's just say for some reason, and the alternative is, um, you know, any other currency that you don't want to hold, uh, you know, there, there are reasons like you have, you have to ask yourself who's holding all this negative rate European and Japanese sovereign debt. Well, somebody, right now, part of that is bank requirements, you know, um, just capital requirements and other requirements for banks, but it's not all that. So there are reasons to hold on to this stuff that you wouldn't guess, but your thesis is basically sound, I think. Um, and you can keep the party going, but you know, I, one of the reasons why I dealt with your question is because I saw this, this thing, you know, and I'm not a doctor or anything, but I saw this mention of um, this disease, this chicken disease called Marek's disease, M-A-R-E-K, Marek's disease. And prior to 1960, Marek's disease was, it was this relatively mild disease um, that chickens could get, okay? And it was not a huge threat, like on small family-run chicken farms, but then these large-scale corporate mega farms took over and it became a bigger problem, right? Because there were just more chickens in one place. So they developed a vaccine for it, introduced in the early 1970s. And the, and the, the mega farms had really, um, they were dominating the chicken industry by 1970. So early 70s, they finally developed a vaccine for this thing. And, you know, the world, there's 20 billion chickens in the world or so, something like that. And, and they're all being vaccinated for this. Now, vaccinated chickens rarely become ill with this Marek's disease. But it has become, over, like over the past, what is it, 50 years? It's become really deadly, right? 100% of chickens that get infected with this are dead within a couple of weeks. Um, and the primary source of their infection, this paper that I read, uh, well, it's really a blog post. Um, the primary source of the infection is shedding of the virulent strain of vaccinated chickens. So 
if unvaccinated chickens get it, um, you know, 100% deadly, and the primary source of infection is shedding of the disease by vaccinated chickens. So Merrick virus has become one of the deadliest viruses for chick, you know, of any organism, right, in history. Um, and the massive chicken farms that, you know, feed us, those of us who eat chicken, um, they're totally dependent on vaccination. And this is what they call a leaky vaccine, right? It's, it's, um, it's suboptimal, right? Vaccine is supposed to, a real vaccine is supposed to prevent infection and transmission. Now, you think I'm probably going to start talking about COVID, right? Well, no, no, I'm going to talk about the Federal Reserve, right? That's what your question is about. That's what we're talking about. And I realized, you know, there's a, there's a parallel here um, with Taylor S. with your question. And the overall the overall idea for me is not trying to figure out what happens if they raise rates or send them into negative interest rate territory. It's just the fact that I view the Fed as a leaky vaccine, right? A, a highly accommodative Fed oversaw the dot-com bust and the financial crisis. They couldn't prevent, they couldn't foresee or prevent a financial crisis that folks like Warren Buffett and Jamie Dimon say nearly destroyed the global financial system, right? And then I read this little thing about how this chicken disease has become absolutely 100% deadly. Now, it's 100% deadly in unvaccinated chickens for sure, but right, that's why I'm not talking about COVID because it gets complicated. But in the stock market, man, we're all uh, every we're all unvaccinated chickens, right? The only people who aren't unvaccinated are people who can directly exploit their status as what they call significant. Uh, I forget what they call it. It's a SIFI, a significant financial institution. Too big to fail is what it really means. So, teach, teach, or I'm sorry, uh, Taylor S., you've got me thinking once again how the Fed thinks they control markets, and a lot of the market thinks the Fed controls the market, but they really don't. Fed policy is a leaky vaccine, and we're all unvaccinated. That's all I'll say about that. It's, but... Man, every time somebody brings up the Fed now, I think, God, is this it? Is this going to be the big one? Is this the one where the Fed completely runs out of ammo and we see that they never had anyone's back all along? I don't know. Finally, this week, we hear once again from our faithful listener and frequent correspondent, Lodovic H. And Lodovic says, what is the biggest lesson learned from the past year on investment, personal, and cultural life with lessons to be a better human in 2022? Boy, that's a, that's a tall order. Um, in personal and cultural life, well, you know, there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of controversy. I won't I won't go off because I just went off about the Fed and Merrick's disease. I won't go off about this, but there's been a lot of controversy about um, the implications of. Uh, for society going forward and and right now um 
you know, uh, regarding vaccine mandates and mask mandates and things. And you see all these truckers protesting up in Canada and people just, they, you know, they want their freedom and they need their freedom. They absolutely need it. And I think probably, you know, some years from now, we're going to look back on this and say, boy, they, the governments of the world really took us all for a ride, didn't it? They forced this leaky vaccine on us and, and, you know, tried to scare the hell out of us and berate us and treat us like animals. I mean, I've heard otherwise reasonable people say that people who don't get vaccinated are members of a death cult. It's shameful. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And so we live through this absurd moment that I think we're going to realize was an absurd moment. Um, but we, but overall, we haven't yet. It's still there's still two sides to this, and they're still bickering like children. Um, as far as investing goes, um, you know, the market ripped. What was it, twenty six percent or something? Twenty six or twenty eight? I forget. It's so huge, it doesn't even matter. It just ripped like crazy in twenty twenty two, and you know, or I'm sorry, in 2021. But we did see, it's interesting, isn't it, Lodewijk? Because what we saw in 2021 last year that you're asking about was a great lesson. The market ripped, lots of stocks went up, but a lot of the speculative garbage got killed starting in February, right? The the ARK fund, ARKK, lots of speculative garbage in there and just lots of hype. The thing went up 150 some percent the prior year and it crashed in 2021 and it's still crashing as we speak, I think. And, you know, um, SPACs and clean energy stocks, pot stocks had been a bubble and crashed, uh, peaked early in the year and they crashed so hard they've become a value play. It's one of my favorite ideas right now for a long play. So I think that's the lesson is that the stock market can do really well and all the overvalued garbage can crash like crazy at the same time. It doesn't have to send the big indexes into a bear market. Uh, that's one lesson. You know, as far as being a better human in 2022, uh, I, you know, I leave that to you, sir. You probably know more about it than I do. So that's the mailbag. And that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to www.investorhour.com, click on the episode you want, scroll all the way down and click on the word transcript and enjoy. If you like this episode and know anybody who might enjoy listening to the show, tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at investorhour.com. And do me a favor, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at Investor Hour. On Twitter, our handle is at Investor underscore Hour. Have a guest you want me to interview? Drop us a note at feedback at InvestorHour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email. Feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. 
Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network. Opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the contributor and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Stansberry Research, its parent company, or affiliates. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this program as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of opinion. Neither Stansbury Research nor its parent company or affiliates warrant the completeness or accuracy of the information expressed on this program, and it should not be relied upon as such. Stansbury Research, its affiliates and subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on the program. The statements and opinions expressed on this program are subject to change without notice. No part of the contributor's compensation from Stansbury Research is related to the specific opinions they express. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Stansbury Research does not guarantee any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this program. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this program may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as a recommendation that is appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this program. Before acting on information on the program, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor.